Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Jason, hi. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm doing okay, uh, yeah. you know, given the context of today. But um, in, in my life overall, I'm doing wonderfully. And um, especially today because it's, it's just a, really, a real treat to see you again after a long time. Yes, we first met because I signed up for a course that you were a part of a teaching team uh, through UC Berkeley. Um, and it was about, you know, d diversity, equity and inclusion. There was even a communications element, which, of course, made me super happy. And I admire UC Berkeley and and uh, and the it was the International House. What was the organization's name? Robertson Center for Intercultural Leadership, CIL, at International House UC Berkeley. Yeah. So that organization putting on this particular program, it was a, it was a real honor for me because I got to meet people from all over the world mm -hmm. and get this kind of global nuance of what DEI looks like in different parts of the world. And I really, really appreciated that. You don't always get that in any kind of, uh, in most you know, diversity programs. So that's how we originally met. And now our lives are really, really different from that time that we were we spent together. We're both uh, published authors and doing our thing and trying to make a, make an impact on the world for the better. Uh, given the privileges that we have been bestowed upon us, um, you know, throughout our lifetimes. And so, you know, I know you, but let's let the audience get to know you a little bit. So introduce yourself. All right, I'm going to keep the intro part really short and sweet. So. My name is Jason Patton. I use he, him pronouns. I am founder and principal of JP Global Lead LLC and co-founder of Bridge Labs, a premier consulting, training, and adult learning laboratory for leading and collaborating effectively and inclusively across cultural differences. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for being in the work. And what's interesting to me is when I was taking the program with you, I got to hear your background the travels that you did, the international exposure that you had and, and what you brought home and into the work that you do. And I'm sure that's what evolved into what we're doing now with your, with your company. So uh, share with us basically that interesting career path that you've had that led you into doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So, I mean, it really goes back to, to my childhood. I, I grew up in, a small town in Western Montana in the United States without a lot of racial diversity, without a lot of cultural diversity, but I had highly educated parents, also both Berkeley PhDs who were, were pretty worldly in their experiences and in their orientation. And I was always fascinated with you know, difference in quotation marks, uh, broadly speaking, and how, how can people relate to one another and understand each other across vast, vast gulfs of difference. And, um, I went off to college in the late 1980s and for various reasons had become interested in China and uh, Mandarin Chinese and Chinese history and started taking classes and just absolutely fell in love with the language. I fell in love with the history and the culture and <clears throat> became even more deeply sad, uh, uh, curious about 
the, what's immediately present, at least in the way that China was presented to me is like, these are two extremely different cultures and languages. And how could it be possible to connect meaningfully with people across these differences? And that question was always just swirling around in my head. So that was one thing that happened to me in the late eighties. And then in parallel to that, I discovered hip hop. And that was like a, the first big awakening for me when it came to race in the United States. Uh, you mean the police aren't there to protect everybody? I mean, mm -hmm. like, like that was the level of understanding that I had at the time. Uh, you know, Public Enemy and NWA were, were two of the groups that really just hit me across the face in a really good way and all, all driven by these, these, these rhythms. And, and it was just a completely different world to me. It just absolutely blew my mind uh, and also got me thinking about social justice in new ways. I finished my degree in 1990 and uh, took a year off to kind of decompress and then went off to China for the first time and uh, discovered that I didn't know anything about how to relate to people <laughs> who were different from me or I knew very, very little because I made every mistake you could possibly make. Hmm. And I think had an inkling at that time that there must be an easier way. You know, I wouldn't change anything about that experience because, you know, it's my life story. But I, I also thought, you know, it shouldn't be this hard. There, there's, there must be ways to equip people with skills for doing this. So uh, three years later, I ended up in a linguistics PhD program because I discovered language really is my main passion. And that was at UC Berkeley. I heard about the intercultural field towards the tail end of my PhD. I finished my PhD in 2003. And then I was hired by Stanford University to be the inaugural director of their study abroad program in Beijing. That was my first leadership position. It was my first experience with organizational authority and uh, having a lot of uh, interesting experiences, challenges and successes, but a lot of challenges um, wielding my authority with care. Mm. Uh, three years of that, then back to the United States to Pennsylvania, which I had never foreseen uh, as a place to live. I got, that was a very challenging time for me professionally. Um, one of the good things that happened during that time, during the financial crisis, I was out of work and managed to get my foot in the door in the intercultural field. And I started, uh, I was a contract trainer for a relocation company and I ended up doing a lot of work at pharmaceutical companies around New Jersey and getting an idea about what some of the tools, I've got something in my mouth, there you go. Some of the tools were in the field. And then back to China, after those four years, I was hired by Johns Hopkins University as American co-director of the Hopkins Nanjing Center for Chinese and American Studies which is another couple of levels up organizationally, another opportunity to, uh, to again, wield a, a, now an even larger degree of organizational authority and mm -hmm. try to do so in a way that forwarded the goals of the organization. Um, but I, I also had not had any formal training in leadership. This is all stuff I was learning on my own while also on the side, I was teaching a class for a study abroad provider there on intercultural stuff, tools, models, and frameworks. During this time, I also learned about some of the fissures between the intercultural field and the what was still then mostly called diversity and inclusion field in the United States and why these two fields didn't get along very well. And really at the center of that was that the intercultural field, while super duper rich in tools, models, and frameworks for understanding difference, had absolutely no concept of power and mm. seemingly no interest in looking at power. And, and when I say power, I'm including very much including privilege in that front mm -hmm. and center. Uh, so 
I, I got this itch to hopefully someday have an opportunity to advance the intercultural field in that regard. And I got that opportunity in 2014 when the Center for Intercultural Leadership opened up at International House and I became its inaugural director. And we had a, a team of three and we, we made up our minds together from the very start that this is what we were going to be about. Uh, we had International House has about 600 residents, UC Berkeley students and scholars from about 70 countries, mm. tremendous uh, international diversity. And we wanted to bring to that a sort of power, privilege, social justice lens and see what we could do along those lines. That was a long journey. Uh, we had some successes over the years. We had some failures over the years. Uh, the culmination of it all was the Global DEI Practitioner Institute that we were able to finally put on in 2021. Uh, and really, uh, what you know, we, we, it was really George Floyd that really kicked us in the butt to like, okay, fine, we've been dancing around this a little too much. Let's just dive right in. And we uh, created the Global DI Practitioner Institute with a focus on how can we bring the tools, models, and frameworks from the intercultural field into these questions around systemic injustice. And um, we put all together a 12-week program that, that, that you went through. Then um, I ended up leaving International House at the end of 2021 and uh, went out on my own. So I'm actually, well, I'm not new to the field. I'm pretty darn new to uh, scrounging up business, you know, from the standpoint of a, you know, an independent business person. I'm, pr I'm pretty new to that. I've been doing it now for almost two years. Um, but just in terms of the work, at the end of the day, for me, what it really boils down to is people are suffering and dying every single day. Mm-hmm due to unjust systems and structures that I benefit from every day. So how can I use the skills and experiences that I have to build a more just and equitable world? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I was sharing with you before we started recording that I just came off of a very long road trip traveling mm -hmm. a lot, which is why I've got the nice, like, low, smoky jazz voice, okay? <laughs> um, you know, jazz radio station voice. Um, mm -hmm. And I um, met hundreds of people, you know, while I was out. And inevitably, I get the stories. People will come and take me aside, and they will tell me mm. some stories, and they will tell me what's going on. One in particular, a woman came to me, and by the time I was handing, I was signing books, and by the time she got up to me, and this has happened multiple times uh, at variety of conferences, where somebody, by the time they get up to me, there's tears in their eyes. And I don't know what it's about. I don't, you know, is this something I said? Is this something that they're processing or whatever it may be? But, you know, she leaned into me and she said, I have a trans child and I'm scared to death. And that's all she said. And just I, I asked for consent to hug her <laughs> mm -hmm. and she took it and she just cried on my shoulder. Now, I'm, I'm, I've been through this before when I released a documentary called God and Gaze, uh, Bridging the Gap. I've, I heard the story. So, and then when I worked in tech, um, being in internal communications, we tend to be a, a counseling center, a therapy office as well, because uh, people can't talk to HR, so they talk to us in communication. So this is something that I am comfortable stepping into. And when, but the thing is, what, what people don't really understand is we hear these stories and that's, you know, that's why we're so urgent, 
That's why we're so passionate because we, we understand, we see the impact. We, we see it and we're hearing it. And to some extent we're experiencing it. I'm, I'm, I'm a gay woman, right? You know, so there's, there's a reality check to the work that we do that we feel like when we're in advantage spaces, when we have the advantage, when we have the privilege in, in spaces that we have to speak up, we have to bring those stories with us in our heart, in our mind, and it shows up in our work and it shows up in our voices. So I really appreciate the, the, your tenacity, your, your commitment to this work, uh, because I don't know if you're a Hamilton fan or not, but you know, history has its eyes on us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, it's just like, there's, 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 um, it's not a coincidence that we're in this situation or the roles that we're in. There's, there's a calling that's happening for many of us. And, and, and many of us are kind of waiting for whatever the organizational and the leadership rock bottom looks like, because we're here, we're ready to work. We can see what's ahead. We know that it's going to be, especially leading up to the election cycle, the presidential election cycle in 24, you know, this, there's, it's going to be really unprecedented. We can see what's coming and how woefully unprepared organizations, especially leaders are. So, so we're just looking for those people who, who trust us and, do what we tell them to do, honestly. So we know that you're out there, you're listening to this podcast and what's next on your uh, reading list is Jason's book. Jason, talk to us about the book and what, you know, what, what drew you to uh, write the book? Who is it for? Tell us about it. The book is called Humanly Possible, a new model of leadership for a more inclusive world. And what drew me to write it was, I felt like after leaving my last position in late 2021, actually for a long time, I, th- I thought, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff that I've had the chance to experience that I think other people could benefit from, but I don't have time to write a book. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, wasn't until I left my last position that not only did I now have a context for writing a book, but I also had an opportunity to join a cohort writing book writing program. And uh, the timing was perfect. And so I jumped into that program and uh, I didn't actually know exactly what the content of the book was going to be, but what it ended up being is a book for what I call inclusion-minded people who want to know some things that they can do every day, specific actions they can take every day to make the workplace and the world more inclusive. And structurally how it, how it plays out is it's a pretty quick read. I mean, it's 33,000 words. It's a, it's a thin little volume. I, um, I don't know if you did this as part of your editing process. They required us to read the book out loud three times before it went to copy editing and then three times again before it went to proofreading. And I was able to read it out loud in about four or five hours. So it's a, it's a, like I said, it's a slim volume. It's a pretty quick read, but, um, it, is shaped through a series of stories about my own career and also the careers of the people that I interviewed. And all of these stories have to do with various examples of good leadership and bad leadership and how they played out. And what I'm trying to do is extract from that principles of effective, inclusive leadership using a lot of the stuff from the intercultural field. So we talk about different communication styles. We talk about different approaches to uh, relationship to time, like polychronic and mon- monochronic relationships with time. And then what it all, what it all really f- uh, focuses in on is this concept of bridging. 
And so one of the core frameworks in the intercultural field is the self-other bridge model. If I want to be able to bridge, if, if, to relate effectively across difference, I need to have self, cultural self-awareness. I need to understand as much as I can about how my own uh, values shape my own actions from a cultural perspective. It's necessary also for me to understand as much as I can about other people's values and what shapes their behaviors. That's a lot harder. I mean, it's hard enough, just given unconscious bias, it's hard enough for me to introspect about my own. It's even harder to learn about others. But that's still not nearly enough. Once we have that, we also need to, we need to know what specific concrete steps that we can take in order to move towards somebody else, and that is bridging. So, um, you know, an example would be something that we would do all the time on our team. Uh, I have what's called a risk orientation. That is to say, I'd love to jump into stuff. And most of my teammates had a certainty orientation. They like to do a little more strategic planning. And we have negative stereotypes about each other based on this. They're a bunch of wet blankets and bubble bursters. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a reckless, you know, I'm going to lead us off a cliff, right? Uh, that's kind of the human condition is we jump to these negative evaluations of others based on these behaviors that we don't like because they seem, they feel like they violate our values. And so it's really helpful for us to recognize that about ourselves and then also create strategies for, for mutual bridging. So, you know, we just, anytime a new project came up, we knew this tension was going to surface and then we would talk it through. Jason, how can you bridge more towards a certainty orientation? And then for the other rest of the team, how can you bridge towards more of a risk orientation? And uh, the more we were able to do that, the more effective we got in our work. So that's just a quick example. And, and, and the book is full of those kinds of examples, but with power front and center again, and with the idea being that, you know, the, the, the human condition, once again, is the way that power plays out. Power is about control. And one of the ways that we control others is by them controlling the way that they behave. And one of the ways that that plays out in the workplace again and again and again and again is the people with more power just naturally expect everybody else to do the bridging, which we call code switching, accommodating, integrating. Assimilation. Assimilating, mm -hmm. yep. And uh, that self-perpetuating dynamic is at the heart of how we how we perpetuate unjust systems and also bad and toxic relationships as well and so the focus continually in the book comes back to it's on those of us who have the most power whether that's organizational authority whether that's societal privilege we've got to do more of the bridging that is a really powerful statement and i think a lot of people appreciate hearing that now, we know that the leadership demographics or the demographics of leaders are, well, they kind of look like you, Jason, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. And so what, what are some of the obstacles that you have found from leaders who are, you know, cisgender, white males, able-bodied, college-educated, et cetera, um, heterosexual, that have been challenges for them to where, is it a lack of awareness? They don't know that they should be bridging or is it a conscious choice to keep this power dynamic in play? Well, I wish I could tell you that I'm in lots of conversations with you know, cis white male leaders um, about these topics. One of my biggest, like when, when I say that I'm, I'm new to kind of the, the, the getting, having the conversations around, hey, what can I do for you? Uh, it's been really hard to even get the interest of mm. 
cis white male leaders to have conversations with me. So my data set is pretty small, unfortunately. Um, that's not going to look, you know, in two, three years, that's not how it's going to be. And maybe we'll have a chance to, to revisit at that time. What I have had a lot of conversations about are um, a lot of my friends are cis white men who, who know cis white men in leadership positions. And even the most elementary conversation is hard because as soon as we mention privilege, defensiveness flows. And it flows because we have been programmed by the systems around us. When I say we, I mean cis white men to believe that we earned what we have. And this feeds into our self-identity. The sense of who we are is built around, I've earned my success. And so when you mention privilege to me, you're instantly putting at risk my entire self-concept, which is pretty scary. And I think what we need to do is just be honest about what's happening there. Like what is happening, you know, the, uh, the amygdala, the human brain's defense mechanism, threat detection mechanism is on high alert because our, who we believe ourselves to be is so core to us. And if we have that being called into question, we are going to feel threatened. And what I want to do is I want us to get better at seeing that we all function inside of systems and those systems are constantly feeding us messages about how we're supposed to think about ourselves based on the identity groups that we belong to. And the messages that we get from society as cis white men is you deserve what you earn. You, you earned what you have. You earned what you have. You're, 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 you're great. You're successful. You, 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 you're, you're, you're living the dream. You're living the dream. And if we could begin to see, first of all, to, to just recognize that defensiveness is what's happening, that the amygdala is active and recognize that as a function of the systems that we're in, that's an opening. And that can get us into all of the other conversations. And so that's really where I like to focus my attention in these conversations first is it's, it's so, it's, you know, in the one sense, it's just like, do we really have to go that basic? Mm. And then the answer I think is, yes, we do. And mm -hmm. that's okay because we also, we need to, it's, this is something I really struggle with. Meet people where they are because I've had the, the, the good fortune, the benefit to have uh, been in a lot of conversations and been exposed to a lot of things that have helped me to, to, to see things, the kinds of things that we're talking about. I don't think that it's necessarily fair that, I should expect that everybody else is going to have just be as welcoming and open to these conversations. And so there's, there's just a lot of nuance around, yes, we need to meet people where they're at, but we also need to persist and insist that we don't give up just because people get a little bit testy. We have to push through that. And we have to, what I like about the systems approach is not only is it accurate, but it allows room for compassion because if we can see ourselves as functioning inside of systems, then it doesn't become about the kind of person that I am. Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Am I, am I a racist? Am I a sexist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, no, the systems 
have built racism, sexism, et cetera, white supremacy writ large into our brains. If we can see it that way and see our brains as functioning inside of those systems, then it's like, it has nothing to do with what kind of person I am. I don't even really know what that means. What kind of person am I? Sometimes I'm an asshole. Sometimes I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I am a bad person. We have thoughts. Sometimes those, some thoughts guide our actions and sometimes the actions that we take are harmful. Can we, can we just get better at seeing it that way for what it is instead of getting all wrapped up in like, who am I? Something that we include in the book towards the end is uh, uh, another organization out of UC Berkeley, the Othering and Belonging Institute, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. John A. Powell yes. um, is widely quoted as saying, we must be hard on systems and soft on people. I but love we've got that it backwards. Book. Yep. Yeah, we've got yeah. it backwards. They're so much harder on people and are completely oblivious to the systems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And thank you for bringing John A. Powell's quote into here because I, that is, I go to that a lot as a reminder. It's, it's a beautiful, incredibly powerful sentiment. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's, to me, it's, it's just a complete paradigm shift, which needs to happen in the conversation around diversity, mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion. It's just, mm -hmm. just, we need to be really talking through the paradigms that have got to be broken. And we do talk about that in our book as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been challenging uh, my clients uh, and those who come to the book club with is focusing on DEI, not as just the terms, but the outcomes that we're trying to achieve with the terms and write communications talking about the outcomes of DEI without using the terms DEI. Now you mentioned privilege as triggering, right? So diversity, equity, and inclusion for the people that you work with and the people that you've, you've you know, worked with in the past as well. Um, and in your circle, diversity, equity, and inclusion, people will just, you know, that, that demographic, uh, I've, I've learned that they basically anything that, you know, not all obviously, hmm. but some will, literally see an email come in if it has anything to do with DEI or <coughs> excuse me, IND, which is inclusion and diversity. They deleted, I don't even read it. And then they contribute either in an overt or a covert way to kind of sabotage any DEI work. So there isn't, there, there, there's, you know, just the words uh, diversity, equity, inclusion are also triggering. So there's mm -hmm. becoming this kind of bucket of terms that, um, are polarizing our workforces, you know, woke, anti-woke, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So you talk about power in your book, and that's something that really is a challenge for us communicators because many of us are trying to coach our leaders along uh, and be those trusted advisors. Um, but we get euphemisms, like we don't want to do too much too soon, or uh, we have competing priorities. So... You know, can you give us any kind of insight? Kind of give us that male mind, <laughs> if you will, that around diversity, equity, inclusion, how leaders, the people that you interviewed for your book, the experiences that you had at, at you know, the variety of universities, how is diversity, equity, and inclusion seen among that demographic that does have and is, is trying to retain power? I've had, I think, in terms of relationships that I've had specifically with cis white men 
in positions of power around DEI has not has been less of the kind that you're that you just described where it's just like I don't want anything to do with this it's been more like DEI sounds like a really important thing how can how do we how do we do it how can we do how can we do more of it uh, and also a, a, um, an interest in learning more about it and at the same time not understanding that this isn't an academic subject. This isn't mm -hmm. something you go and read about and then go A, B, C, D, E, done. The mm -hmm. work is always going to be deeply intrapersonal and interpersonal. And we, we're not, the, 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 the systems that we function inside of going back to you, like how, 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 what we're taught to value. Big news, friends. We have found a way to duplicate the content we share so it can be everywhere all at once. Announcing the DEI Communications Blueprint. <sighs> it is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients. So by taking the video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain more confidence in DEI communications, and shift DEI messaging and narratives to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we're throwing in bonuses webinar replays so you get fresh ongoing content go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com that is deicommunicationsblueprint.com to get started value the kinds of behaviors that we're taught to value um the kinds of outcomes that we're taught to strive for really don't have a lot to do with the kind of deep intrapersonal and interpersonal learning and growth that's necessary for DEI to become more successful. We are, we're trained up on a scarcity mentality mm -hmm. that says you have to scratch and claw your way to the top. And we can analyze our way to any outcome. Uh, overt expressions of emotion, especially negative emotion are frowned upon. The, uh, skills that are needed to get a deeper understanding of ourselves from an emotional perspective are disparagingly called soft skills as if soft is bad mm -hmm. and hard is good. Mm -hmm. They're seen as ancillary, peripheral, marginal. And one of the biggest challenges that I've had in trying to engage mostly cis white men in positions of power who have a stated intention of quote unquote doing good with regard to DEI is seeing an, an utter lack of, of interest in engaging in that deep intrapersonal and, and interpersonal work. It's just like, can we just get on with it and just solve it? Like, just like you solve any business problem. So the nature of the challenge, even communicating the nature of the challenge is I've found to be incredibly difficult, uh, including among folks who I, 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 I believe them 
when they say that they want a better world. I, I think they're being sincere about that. It's, it's just that there's this very large gap when it comes to, to doing that difficult intra, intra, intrapersonal and interpersonal work. Do you have advice for communicators and others who are around that can pull and engage leaders into the work in a way that is is meaningful, you know, as an outcome to the work, but also understanding where the leaders are coming from. How do we help leaders through their hesitancy? <laughs> so I, 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 I dare not call this advice simply because um, I don't have enough of an experiential base to say that it works. <laughs> so I'll, 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 I'll offer a friendly amendment and say that um, something I want to have more opportunities to try. And that I think communicators hopefully will, get more opportunities to try is start with an acknowledgement of whatever, whatever feelings any given leader might be experiencing are completely natural and understandable. A reassurance that nobody's here to call you out as a bad person. Nobody's here to shame you. to try to carve out space for the, for whoever it is that we're talking to, whoever that leader may be or group of leaders may be so that they can exhale a little bit and reassure them. There really isn't anything to lose here in the big picture. If what we really want is a world that works for everyone, we all gain from that. And we all have a role to play in that. And the good news is you all leaders with a lot of privilege <laughs> in this hypothetical conversation, you actually are in an incredibly powerful position to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I think name there's just, I just, I'm such a believer in the power of naming. If you can just name what's going on, rob it of its power. I mean, that's not mm -hmm. my idea. That's come from philosophers and, you know, <laughs> lots and lots and lots of people over the centuries. Uh, it's, but it's true in, in my view that when we, can, when we can name what's going on, recognize it as something that's natural and normal, we can remove a lot of the sense of threat that's present, which can just crack open that little bit of space that we need to move into those larger, longer term conversations around action. I have a lot of compassion for leaders, honestly, Jason, you know, uh, DEI was never a part of them getting to the C-suite, <laughs> you know, it was not part mm -hmm. of their professional development and, and performance goals. Yeah. You know, they were never accountable to it. There it's, it, it's, that's not what the reward and recognition that got them to the level that they're at. It was not based on that. And so for us to turn our heads since especially the summer of 2020 and stare at them and say, say something, do something, mm -hmm. you know, they're in over their heads. They actually don't know what to do, but this is also that time of coachability, humility, trusting the people around you that do know, that do know mm -hmm. what to do. So use your power, your resources, um, your access, your platform in a way that benefits other people informed by those who can have, you know, can um, benefit from the meaningful impact of you speaking up, standing up, taking action. 
Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of this opportunity for a collaborative experience. Now, I want to go back actually to something that you said earlier about the bridging and the adapting, which leaves this power dynamic of, you know, um, it's up to you. You, it, you know, you have, I'm going to do my thing, but you have to be the one that changes in this environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk specifically in your book about how someone needs to adapt. It's one of the themes in your book. So, you know, you described it as, as bridging, et cetera. Do you have um, a specific example, you know, just kind of uh, in daily life kind of example of, you know, what, what happens when we don't have the bridging and what, what did happen when we can introduce the, the bridging? What, what kind of impact does that have? Yeah, I think I told this story... I think it's chapter two. It's, it's very early in the book. The chapter is called Off a Cliff. And it relates back to this difference in terms of risk orientation versus certainty orientation. And I tell the story. Um, and I'll just, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert. I tell, I tell it, and there's, there's, there's a narrative reason why I did this. But I, I tell it as if this, le- this leader is somebody who's not me. But it, it turns out it was actually me. So I'm just going to tell the story. <laughs> um, uh, so you'll, you'll miss that if, you know, if you listen to this podcast and go read the book, my apologies, but it wouldn't make any sense otherwise. Um, our small young team had an opportunity to give a talk, uh, on a topic that was not in our sweet spot in our wheelhouse. And I pushed forward, gave a horrible talk. The client refused to pay. Mm. And, uh, and it was also, is it was, it was, a, a, an acquaintance of a, of a board member, it's very awkward. And not only had, so I did not, I, and I, I, I knew already at this point, we were well aware of this difference on our team between a risk orientation and a certainty orientation, but I just went ahead and did it my way and exposed our team to tremendous risk. This was a you know, pretty influential organization. Uh, and not only that, but I had completely broken trust with one colleague in particular mm-hmm. and really needed to go and, 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 and clean that up and acknowledge that I had, and in the book I described it as like, she did all the bridging, like she did A, B, C, D, E. She had taken, she had actually engaged in all, utilized all of the bridging strategies, we call them, so, you know, specific actions that you can take to bridge towards somebody else. She had engaged in all of the main bridging strategies for people with a risk orientation, bridging to people or certainty orientation, bridging towards people with a risk orientation. I hadn't done any bridging at all. Mm. So we were able to, so I, I, I take that opportunity also just a, a little bit of a side trip here to talk about the need for accountability and for healing and repair when we screw up, cause we're going to, and that's another aspect of the fear is like, what if I screw up? Well, you're going to screw up. So how do you mm-hmm. heal and repair? What are, what, and I have some thoughts on that in that chapter. And then a commitment, part of, part of the accountability piece is like, I'm not going to make the same mistake again. Whatever it was that I did, I need to understand it well enough that I'm not going to make the same mistake again. And so that's what really, really solidified in me a deep commitment to bridging towards people with a certainty orientation. I knew that I'd always have that risk impulse, but I saw what happened. And that's how we were really, really able to take to the next level our processes as a team in really bridging towards one another. And 
So, and, and this is another piece as well. I'm not saying it's always got to be the people who have the most power who are doing all of the bridging. There's a lot of nuance and complexity in that that comes out not only in this chapter, but in other chapters in the book as well. There's sometimes, there's times we just can't bridge because the societal, the cultural preferences around us, the organizational and societal preferences around us are so strong. We might get ourselves fired if we bridge towards an employee, right? And maybe, maybe that's okay. Maybe I'm willing to do that, but maybe I'm not. So a lot of nuance there. That's another side trip there. But to get back to your question, that's a real life example of how keeping this bridging question front and center with, with power at the core uh, can really help us come back from big mistakes and, and move forward in a way that's more inclusive and ultimately more effective. I really like the imagery of bridging, you know, because, you know, how does one build a bridge? You, you know, if you think of a chasm or a canyon or something, you have anchors on one side where there's solid ground and anchors, you know, on the other side that has solid ground. You have to come from a place of anchoring to come towards each other. <laughs> you know, like and, but it takes both of us. Otherwise, like, you know, if just one person is just anchored and trying to get to the other person, you know, there, there's a collaboration and partnership there that that a lot of us have to build our skills around mm -hmm. to, you know, really find that room and that space to be with each other. I'm not necessarily looking to change you on the other side as the anchor. And I don't want you and don't need you to change me, but there is a way that we can come together and actually build this bridge that's going to create so much more access or better ideas or whatever it is that between the two of us, it's far better that we collaborate and team up in that way than, you know, stay apart. And there's this chasm between us. There's a, there's a lot of imagery that's really coming up for me around that. So I, I appreciate that, that you use uh, bridging. Now we are recording. Oh, one more thing. Just, just, I want to interrupt there, which is just to say like the term bridging also, I can't claim credit for it. It, um, it comes, my, my usage of the term comes from the intercultural field and also John A. Powell and the Othering Belonging Institute uses the term bridging in a, in a related but different way, but I definitely mm. can't claim credit for it. So I just want to be clear with your listeners about that. <laughs> well, now I'm curious about going and checking out about how they talk about it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we are recording in the shadow of the SCOTUS, uh, Supreme Court of the United States, decision around affirmative action, removing race as, uh, what do they call it? A, a, a decision-making factor in admissions. No, express, expressing, express factor. I can't remember exactly the term. I, I haven't actually read the decision. Yeah. Um, so we're both feeling it. Uh, I teach at San Jose State University. I'll be beginning um, a, a, a uh, tour, if you will, of being a part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion community uh, committee at San Jose State University. You've worked with several universities um, and getting your PhD. You've been a student as well through all of, you know, for a while and been around a lot of students. So you also, <laughs> you were saying in your background that linguistics is your thing. So ta you, you did a pretty amazing post, um, that was very impassioned and it related to a paper that you posted. So talk to us, tell us what this affirmative action decision means for companies and for, um, 
but also that there's there's language that's been used mm-hmm. according to affirmative action that has been weaponized and overlooked. So if you can mm-hmm. talk to us about that. So the, the the thank you for your kind words about the LinkedIn post. I really didn't I didn't know what to make of it. It's a little out of character for me to go and put up an academic paper. Um, but I felt motivated to do that this morning because uh, part of my history that I didn't talk about is is one of my first actual engagements in social justice was in 1995 when the regents of the University of California voted to eliminate affirmative action in hiring admissions and contracting. And um, I knew that it was a bad decision. I found myself having a very hard time explaining why. And I found that any opponent of affirmative action immediately had a rhetorical advantage when talking about affirmative action because all they had to do was say the word preferences and you're dead. You believe in racial preferences, Jason? What, what, what? Jeez, uh, what, da, 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 what? No, no. Well, isn't that what affirmative action is? It's racial preferences, right? I mean, you're saying because you belong to a certain racial group, you should get preferential treatment, right? I mean, that's what it is, right? What the hell can I do to that? Right. Yeah. Back on our heels right from the get go. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm in this linguistics program and there's some really cool stuff, uh, some interesting tools around uh, the use specifically of metaphor and a big, big, big tip of the hat to one of my professors, George Lakoff, who uh, was one of the two main founders of the field of conceptual metaphor theory, had already created this big set of tools for looking at metaphor is something that's not strictly linguistic. It's not just a poetic thing. It's something that we you know the classic book was Lakoff and Turner, 1980 metaphors we live by and um, had evolved by the mid nineties into uh, there'd been a lot of stuff written about this already. And so I just set to work writing and it eventually resulted in a 1999 paper that I published from a conference presentation that I made. And the LinkedIn post is essentially it's a, it's a, it's a 10 page, it's a 10 page paper. And the reason I decided to post it is I think there's some really useful tools from the field of linguistics that can help us as advocates uh, and things, things for us to be alert to in how language is used. And one of the things that I pointed out in the paper, and this is, you know, I, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth around it because we don't have time for it. And most of it would probably be boring, but uh this whole, this whole notion of preferences, it's, there, there's, there's this metaphor that we base so much of the way that we think, speak, and act in U.S. society specifically, not only U.S. society, but it's based on athletic competition. And mm-hmm. but that's what's called the source domain. We have this way of thinking and reasoning and speaking about athletic competition. We assume that everybody has showed up to the field of competition you know, equally prepared, equally ready to compete. You can't change the rules for one competitor because that's not fair. And as any, any metaphor is going to highlight and hide certain aspects of the target domain, which is like the actual reality that we're using the source domain for reasoning and talking about. And when you import wholesale an athletic metaphor to talk about something that is so much more complex than that, mm-hmm. you're going to end up oversimplifying a heck of a lot and the word preferences it all sort of comes to a head at this term preferences because you know something kim 
I've benefited from racial preferences my whole damn life. I benefit from racial preferences every single day of my life. Every single moment of every single day of my life, I benefit from racial preferences. But no one's coming up to me and waving their finger in my face and saying, Jason, look at the racial preferences in your life, right? But then the second, the second that we try to come up with policies that are going to redress not only historical inequities, but current inequities as well, we can just go wave our fingers in everybody else's faces and say, no preferences, no preferences, no preferences, as if they didn't exist always and everywhere. So that's that's really what I was trying to get at in, in the post. And I think what, what happened was when I, I, ran, I went to the Wall Street Journal article here, um, well, that's, that's, that's not the, the headline article here. I don't have it in front of me right now. But right there in the third paragraph, it says something like, uh, this the SCOTUS ruling is going to rework force people to rework how they use racial preferences in blah blah blah. I'm just like, God damn it! Mm-hmm. It's, there it is again. There it is again. This is 24 years after I published the paper, and it's still happening. And I don't know. I didn't expect any different. It was just. It was still just like this sort of ugh moment. Um, and so I, I I put the paper up there. I I I hope a lot of people take a look at it. I, what I feel like is we need to, we need a real hive mind here uh, to come up with better, more effective ways of, of, of talking about affirmative action specifically uh, and also a bunch of other stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it was a small, it was a, a, a small conference I went to. Not a whole lot of people got eyes on the paper. I got onto other things. I haven't touched it in 24 years. And so I thought today might be a good day to, to, to bring it back up and, and hope, hope that, that some people can take it and run with it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole idea of preferences slid into LGBTQ plus community as well. So preferred mm-hmm. pronouns. Mm-hmm. And we think we're being polite by saying, what pronouns do you prefer? Um, and it's actually, it's, that's, that's othering LGBTQ plus folks because people just have pronouns. I might prefer mustard over mayonnaise on my sandwich, but my pronouns are my pronouns, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she, her, it's, that's, you know, there's no preference there. It's not my preferred name. It's like, this is what I'm, this is who I'm called. This is my name, just like anyone else. And this, these are my pronouns, just like anyone else. We add on these layers of things and to your point looking at language and i think we need to have another discussion and have you back because i really wanted i wanted to focus on the book today but there's a whole heap of of wisdom that you have around linguistics that can really help us to be more conscious communicators and and coming up with that language to really understand what the outcomes of dei are and being able to tell it in a compelling way where everybody can see themselves, which will help with the shifting of your breaking down of the, the paradigms and, and the misinformation, et cetera, around what the point of DEI actually is. So I, I think we're going to have to have you back, but I'm going I'm to leave you with this one question, um, Jason, as we wrap mm-hmm. up. So I ask everybody this question, what does communicating like you give a damn sound like, feel like, you know, feel free to pull in the linguistics PhD there. Um, <laughs> you know, what does it look like? What is communicating like you give a damn? I have so, sadly, I have so many more examples of what it doesn't sound like. Um, 
um, than, than of what it actually sounds like. So like, it doesn't sound like paying lip service. It doesn't sound like reciting platitudes. It sounds like, if, so in terms of what it sounds like, it sounds like meaningful action is going to flow from it. But you're not actually communicating like you give a damn unless the actions flow, actually do flow from the language. So we can, we might be communicating like we, we, we might sound like we're communicating like we give a damn, but if we don't actually do the stuff that we say we need to be doing, then it's not actually communicating like we give a damn. So there's this connection between word and deed. That's, that's a part of that that you can't necessarily get into the sound of the language because it's ultimately about actually doing, doing the work. Um, but there's, there's an accountability piece in there as well. And, and there's, there's obviously a lot to say about what accountability is and, and what it looks like. Uh, that's about the best I can do off the, off the, uh, you know, for, for, a, for a brief answer to a very, very complex question, but, but <laughs> word and deed lining up. Love it. Absolutely. Closing that say do gap. Um, and the benefit of communicators um, doing doing the work as DEI communicators, it's really understanding that visibility drives accountability. So leading that way of how to have the conversations. I, I'm not going to add more on to yours. Yours was strong enough. So um, how can people follow you, uh, get your book, um, you know, learn more about what you do, work with you? You know, let us let us know your deeds. Email. I'm, 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 it's funny. I mean, you know, it's like a, whoever thought email would become old fashioned, but you know, I'm a couple generations <laughs> behind now as a Gen Xer. Uh, I'm but, a Gen Xer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jason at com. That's the best way to reach me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn a fair amount. Uh, I don't have my, if there's show notes, I could, you know, I could send that to you and we put in the show notes. But if you look up Jason Patton on LinkedIn, that's a good place to find me. Uh, JasonPatton.com, my website uh, is up and running. And, Yay. And then I also want to mention Bridge Labs again. This is a this is a partnership between me and a, a former colleague at the Center for Intercultural Leadership, uh, Lauren Maloney Ignatius, and we are BridgeLabs.LearnWorlds.com. And I can also put that into the the show notes as well. And I just I welcome engagement from from anyone and would love to keep the conversation going. Get his book, Humanly Possible, everywhere that. Oh yeah, I didn't mention the book. <laughs> yes. Support independent bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, thank you again for that too, Kim. Yeah, the book it's 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 out there and available. Humanly possible: a new model of leadership for a more inclusive world. Jason, thank you for taking the time, especially on a day like today. I really appreciate learning from you. Thank you for the book. Thank you for what you're doing in the world and and the kind of conversations that you're having. You know, when some of us are not in the room. So, thank you for being a leader of leaders. Well, you're welcome, and I just tenfold back at you, Kim. Um, I'm just a big fan, as you know. I'm a big, big <laughs> fan of, of everything that you're doing. And I love um, knowing that we have you know, fellow travelers. This We have this community of people, and we all bring our own talents and experiences to it, and we're going to keep it up. And um, I just, I really treasure the chance to, to be here with you today. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Jason. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner 
to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.